1 Corinthians, I, uh, every once in a while I like to just break from uh, the uh, verse by verse in one book and turn to something else, especially when the Lord lays something on my heart. I want to be able to share that with you. And there's a good break at 1 Corinthians 3 to 4. It's a, a good natural context change there. And so I would like you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 through 16, where Pastor Brian read for us today. As I thought about this passage, I was re- fondly reminded of my uh, junior high days when we had the presidential fitness test. Does anybody remember that in the 70s? Uh, you know, the presidential fitness test. Oh my goodness, now we can't get kids to dress out for PE. Back then you had to go put on your PE, you know, go run a mile or two and pull-ups and push-ups and all of that. And then they'd give you a score at the end and tell you how bad you were. Heaven forgive, with the, heaven forgive the self-esteem issues that were created from that. <laughs> Presidential fitness test. Well, what about a spiritual fitness test? I think that's what the Bible does with us. It doesn't necessarily score us next to somebody else. But the Bible's always challenging us, challenging us for our spiritual fitness. You know, when you read the scriptures, it doesn't settle for less. Do you know that? The scriptures never say, well, shoot for mediocrity, and let's see how it goes. The scriptures always shoot for perfection in Christ. They always teach us what the standard of God is. I love that. I hate shooting for things less. (laughs) But the Bible always is after us to say, oh, Scott, here's what I have for you. Here's what I've accomplished. Here's what strength I've given you to accomplish this spiritual agility test of living this life in a fallen world. Well, as we look at this text in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, it certainly lies in a greater context. Paul has been explaining his amazing religious credentials, right? He's the poster board of Hebrew of Hebrews, right? He goes down through his credentials there, but then this miraculous transformation happens on the way to Damascus, there where he was going to persecute Christians, put Christians in jail, and even to death. There he's met in a life-changing encounter with a risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And now Paul dismisses all his self-righteousness. He dismisses all those things that he built himself on, his own identity of who he was because he kept the law in some way. He dismisses all of that and he calls it as worthless. In fact, the Greek's very strong and even refers to dung. That's how he looks at his religious experience before Christ. But then he begins to gladly tell us with great expression of worship that there's nothing compared to knowing Jesus Christ. There's nothing compared to it. It's the greatest thing that's ever happened to him. He goes on to tell us that not longer does he have his own righteousness, he has the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is the only thing that will be accepted in heaven in verse 9. Paul doesn't end there, though. He goes beyond his salvation experience and expounds on the power of the resurrection for the believer and how it continues to give us victory over sin, Satan, and death. And he highlights that. He relates the closeness that he has with Christ when he, when he suffers. He, when he goes through suffering, it, it brings him close to Christ. Oh, I thought about that this week. Man, when we suffer, does that what it does? Or do we grumble and complain? Oh, I don't like being sick. 
or I don't like some, this conflict I'm in. See, he said, when, when I suffer, it causes me to be closer to Christ. It causes me to conform to him more and more in my life. Finally, in typical Pauline humility, he longs for the resurrection of his body. He longs to have the new body that he'll have in Christ. He understands his perfect position. We have a position in Christ, all who are believers. We have a perfect holy standing with God. But yet there is this ongoing living in this unredeemed humanness, this fallen state that we're in, and there's a, there's a progression to our sanctification. We're growing along in our faith. And at the end of that, God rewards us with eternal life. And for many who die before the return of Christ, he will meet their souls with their bodies and give them bodies like his own son. But Paul longs for that. He longs for the face-to-face encounter with Jesus. And it motivates him. It motivates him. I thought about young people, particularly maybe young believers in Philippi as they read this letter. Maybe they looked at this and said, well, you're Paul. You planted our church, you planted Ephesus and Colossae and so forth and something like it. You're Paul. I mean, look at you. And maybe they were tempted to say, well, you know, Paul's Paul. Man, he's, he's, really, he's really top shelf. But that's not how Paul writes. He writes and brings it in by the inspiration of the Scripture to say, we... Two, just like me, he always includes us, and you'll see this in the text, he always includes us in this progression of growth, of pressing on, letting go of paths, moving forward for this upward calling, not being content to stay where you are or live back there or hold on to some legalistic view of yourself. Paul doesn't want us to do that. He wants us to move forward. He wrote to the the Colossae church in Colossians 2.10, he says, And in him, that's Jesus Christ, you have been made complete. It's a perfect passive. It's an interesting verb. You have been made complete, perfect passive meaning. It's something that happened in the past at your time of your salvation that has eternal ramification, and it's passive because God did it to us. So he reminds us over and over throughout this text, we're going to see this as we bounce around Philippians just a little bit. We'll see that we have this perfect standing that God gave us. And from that perfect standing, if we were to die today, we have a perfect standing with God. We'll stand in his presence perfectly. But from that perfect standing, there's this launching of the Christian life to live for him and not for this world. And so... Here they are, the Philippians, the Colossae, the church that meets at Riverbend. And I think sometimes when doctrine is taught the way a church like ours teaches, it, it teaches sanctification, initial and progressive, teaches justification, declared to be righteous by God, imputation of, of Christ's righteousness to us, there is a temptation somehow to get lulled into, hey, I'm okay, well, look what Jesus did for me. And that temptation flushes out in our life that we stop living for him at times. If we were to take the spiritual fitness test, we would flunk it. And we rely on this grace of God and we become those who Paul warns of in in Romans chapter 6, that there's an abuse of grace there. How can we, 
How can we who died with Christ continue in sin any longer? He's always trying to motivate Christians to go, come on, let's go. It's time to run. We think about this. We've received this beautiful, inherited life with Christ, both on this earth and in coming in the, in the coming life. And, and it causes you to say, when you really study this, you causes you, you must get to this point, Lord, am I willing to give up all to follow you? I, I mean, it's never changed that tune, right? Luke chapter 9, Mark 8, on and on. He goes, take up your cross and follow me. Men come to him and say, oh, I want to follow you. He goes, uh, go sell all you have and come after me. Well, I don't know. Well, well hey, I want to follow you. Well, I got to go bury my, my dad first because there's money there. See, there's always Christ telling people to come after him, and he shows human response often. Well, I got some things to do first. See, he's, he's after us. But I think with the true saved, when, when we take this spiritual fitness test, and we may have to confess and repent, we come back around and we say, God, I want my life to be an act of worship to you. I really do. I want, I want my life to be an act of worship. See, if you know Jesus Christ, you want your life to be an, a spiritual sacrifice to the Lord. It also gives you great insurance when you walk with the Lord. When you walk with the Lord and you consistently walk with Him and you consistently confess and repent sin when you've done things opposite of what God's asked us to do, it gives your heart great assurance. It tells you there's been change. I mean, how else do you know you're saved? I mean, think about it. Now, we're not basing salvation on works in any way, but how else would you know you're saved? I said a prayer, I walked an aisle, I raised a hand, but there's absolutely no change in my life. I don't have a desire for the things of God consistently throughout my life. How would you ever stand before God and say, hey, let me in? Isn't it gracious of God that he challenges us and encourages us and woos us and gives us the spirit and the word to help us live for him so we know we're saved? I think that's a, that's a very valid point, isn't it? God has not given us assurance for his sake. He knows the saved. He's given us assurance for us. Do you love me? Do you love me? Will you follow me? I think it produces great joy. There's no more joyful times in my life as then when I'm walking with the Lord, and everything's better when I'm walking with the Lord. When God grants me a new grandson... When I'm walking with the Lord, I love that. I'm full of joy. And when I look at the church, and this church particularly, as it has suffered through many things this last couple of years that, that have been allowed to happen in one way or another, I, I find great joy. But if I'm not walking with the Lord, you see things difficult, right? You see difficult things are happening. You, you focus in on the negative. You don't see Christ there. When I'm walking with the Lord, I understand suffering better. I understand that God has allowed something in my life to refine me and to begin to speak more with Him. It causes me to testify of Christ to a lost world. See, when you're not walking with the Lord, why would you tell somebody about the Christ you're not walking with? Good point. See, when you're walking with the Lord, you desire to tell somebody why you have that joy, why you have this experience that they don't have. And walking with the Lord causes us to be equipped to follow Him. Well, this morning, 
Paul's text here is going to instruct us of how we can fulfill those truths and help us pursue Christ-likeness day after day and achieve it. When we, when we stand in front of him face to face, there will be great joy and not sorrow because I failed to walk for him. We want to walk into his presence and say, Oh, Lord, thank you for sustaining me. Let me pose five questions to you this morning in this text. We'll move quickly through this and work our way to um, communion. Number one, do we seek a biblically accurate evaluation of ourselves? Do we seek a biblical accurate evaluation of ourselves? Oh, we love to evaluate a lot of people, don't we? (laughs) But do we evaluate ourselves? Maybe ask the question, uh, if I arrived? I think, unfortunately, some Christians think they've arrived. Well, you know, what is left to do? I've gone to church, I memorized the Romans road, and I witnessed once. I'm just waiting for Jesus to return. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And, and accordingly, the answer is no, we're not. I remember that question coming out of the back seat of the pickup on our way to vacation many times. Dad, are we there yet? And when I would say no, they would say, Dad, but what are we going to see when we get there? One of our great vacation spots was a little lake called Medicine Lake. It was about 6,800 feet up tucked in behind Mount Shasta. And there was a long drive from our our church and our ministry in Hollister to get there. I remember the boys would ask over and over, going up I-5, which was kind of like 95, and, and Dad, Dad, tell us again about Medicine Lake. And we would begin to rehearse about the things we loved about that. Makes me think of heaven. See, when you're walking with the Lord, you do think of heaven. I've shared this a couple times since G.I. Packer passed away. Remember, he said that one hour a day he dedicated to thinking about heaven. See, when, you, when you're walking with the Lord, you think about heaven. As I would describe the lakes and the, and, uh, the mountains and the, and the beautiful surroundings of where we would camp uh, for a couple of weeks every summer, the boys would get excited about it. Do you describe heaven to yourself? Do you describe the absence of sin? I think it's one of the top things I look forward to. Certainly seeing my Savior is at the top, but oh, the battle with sin is done. When we see him, we'll be like him. Oh, we need to speak of these things. See, that's one of the ways to think of a, of a spiritual fitness test. Are we, do we have a biblical, accurate view of ourselves? Do I care about the things of eternity? Do I think about this life that leads up to eternity? Paul, notice in verse 12, says, um, I'm not obtained it yet. I'm not yet perfect. He says, not that I have already attained it or have already become perfect. Well, this could either really encourage you or discourage you, one of the two. Someone might say, well, man, Paul's saying that. What hope is it for me? To me, I find great encouragement here. Paul, who is a hero in the faith, is saying, I'm still pressing on. I have not got there yet, but I am on the way. I find that very much encouraging. See, Paul had left his religious experience of self-righteousness behind him. He no longer relied on his own self-righteousness. He was finding himself in Christ, and this was motivating him. He believed he had a perfect standing with Christ, and he looked forward to the full salvific completion of that. See, the Bible speaks of our past saving, our present saving, and our future saving. And there's a future saving. When we come into his presence and realize all that was accomplished for us, we will find that fullness. And then there's this transformation that goes on to this life, brothers and sisters. 
The Bible says that this life should be growing dimmer to us, and yet Christ should be coming greater. Paul reminds us of this in 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all, believers, with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being present, continual tense, transformed into the same image from glory to glory. From, the, from our salvific birth to our, to our walking into the presence of the glory of God, there is a constant transformation that should be taking place in our life if we're believers. He went on later, or actually earlier, in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, to say this, for now we see in a mirror dimly, Oh, I thought about this week. I go, Lord, there's so many things going on in this world right now and all the things that are going on with the church and different things. It seems, I want to look at what it looks like in heaven, but it seems dim at times because of the difficulties of life. But then he says this, it's dim here, but then face to face. See, what a promise. You'll see Jesus face to face. Even though it seems dim right now and we're plagued with, with disease and wars and rumors of wars and tribulations and trials and all going on and it seems a little bit dimmy, a little bit fog, foggy at some time, you will see Jesus face to face. The verse goes on to say, now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. See, right there we'll know, oh Christ, you knew everything about me. You knew all that I was going through. You knew the time of my death, what the source of my death was. You knew all of those things, and yet I lived in fear. See, he knows that fully. I think if we're honest with ourselves, truly honest of ourselves, and take a spiritual assessment of ourselves, we have to ask the question, am I progressing? Is something in this life holding me back right now? Is my fears of something or, or an issue that's going on in my life and I'm trying to blame why I'm not growing, trying to blame it on something else? Or are we truly progressing? The Bible's clear. We haven't attained it yet. We're not yet perfect. Positionally perfect. Humanity, we're still growing in this, aren't we? In our humanity. And so here's the goal. Pursue the glorious prize of Christ. Second thought. Are we pressing on in our understanding of the finished work of Christ, which results in a Christ-honoring life? I think it's, Paul's really saying, are you going to seize the moment? Are you going to seize what God has done for you, or are you going to waller around? Are you going to sit on the side of the race, or are you going to get up and run? And, and you go, well, what has God accomplished? And just no particular order, just think about some of the things just briefly. He says you're a new creation. Well, that's a lot better than old creation. Anything new is better, Right? We're a new creation. All things have passed away. All, behold, all things have become new. He says we have a new heart. Some of our brothers uh, have gone through heart surgery. They're still recovering. They're not here today in this last month or so. Big time heart surgeries. And they would tell you that their old, their fleshly heart is wearing out and they've had to get new valves and they have to go through that difficult process of open heart surgery. But they both will tell you, because I've spoken with both of them, they've said, but I have a new heart in Jesus. That's what we have. This is what he's talking about. This is our position we have. We have spiritual riches and strengths according to Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3. We're one with Christ according to Galatians 3, 28. There is no greater in the kingdom of God. We learned in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16 that we have the mind of Christ. 
That's astounding. We have the mind of Christ through the Spirit of God. So what, what does that mean? That means that we can humanly think the way Christ thinks at some level, right? And so the old little phrase that seemed as silly as it was, what would Jesus do? In reality, for a true believer with the Bible and with the Spirit of God, you could actually say, I know what Jesus would do in this situation. He would love them instead of fight with them. He would call sin, sin. But he would, he would gather people. He would draw people towards the truth. See, we're able to do that because we have the mind of Christ. This is what he's talking about, this perfection that he talks about there. Think about it. We have no condemnation to those who are in Christ. We've been declared righteous by, by the work of Christ. We have the imputed righteousness of Christ. We've been redeemed. And think about this. All our sins, past, present, and future, forgiven. That is our standing. That's who we are in Christ. So in short, we are holy because God is holy. That's the standing. That's, that's what what's drives us, and that's what we'll, we'll always be known for. And yet in this life, he tells us, lay hold of this. Get a hold of what Christ has already laid hold of for you. Get a hold of it. Get it around your mind. This is why doctrine is so important, and where churches don't teach doctrine anymore, this is why their people struggle in infinite, inf infantile or immature things. Because they don't teach them this incredible holy standing to have in God. So there's nothing to run for. It's just deal with one problem one day, deal with the next problem the next day, and the next one, and the next one, and they just start in this little circular pattern of struggling. It is the glory of God and all that he has done for us that causes us to repent and turn from sin and walk with him. Notice the word in verse 12, in verse 12, the press on. The word literally means to pursue or to chase. Pursue this. Chase this. Are you chasing the perfection of Christ? Not in the works in any way. Believe me, I'm not talking about works here. I'm talking about the results of the finished work. I, I think this last year, this is my thought, you can take it for, I think a lot of Christians stopped running. And I am talking with pastors after pastors around the country that are weeping over their churches. People have stopped running. Fear has taken over in so many cases. Paul told the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, he says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though the outer man is decaying. <laughs> Some of us is in rapid decay, isn't it? Yet the inner man is being present continual tense again, being renewed day by day. Are you being renewed day by day? Or maybe once a year I have kind of some spiritual encounter or there's a really good sermon that hit me or I heard a song on the radio. Boy, if you're dependent only on my sermons, you're in trouble. <laughs> See, it's being renewed day after day. That's what our position in Jesus Christ does for us. Peter is dying words that we have, last words of the apostle Peter. It says, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is last one. Last thing he could tell the church, last thing he could tell his wife as they hung him upside down, tradition tells us, the last thing he could say, inspired by God, was grow, continual tense, grow in Jesus. Don't stay still, Satan leads you. Paul loves athletic terms, doesn't he? Some of us like that about him. 
He, he uses athletic terms all the way through, right? He's run the race, fight the fight, boxing away without beating the air, discipline the body, finish the course, receive the prize. Even in verse 14, we see this type of motivation, this Christocentric motivation to live for him. And, and notice Paul is declaring that he, he's not yet arrived himself. Look at that, he says that. But he has real specific goals that he's after. Look at verse 10 and 11. He says, that I may know, that I may know. He, he wants to know further the power of the resurrection. He wants to know further these things. And then look what he understands. Verse 20, drop all the way down because he knows his citizenship is in heaven. He hasn't received that yet. He's eagerly waiting for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He hasn't, he hasn't has that, that relationship from a, a, from a present eternal state, right? And then he's waiting for this as well, who will transform the body of our humble state, humanity, into conformity with the body of his glory. He's waiting for that. And so this is what motivates him. So in other words, since Christ was first to pursue these eternal goals for us, our holy standing, our complete forgiveness, our no condemnation, all of that, since Christ pursued those first, we, like Paul, now respond in active worships daily. And think about the things the list he gave us. We pursue the power of Christ's righteous, uh, excuse me, Christ's resurrection. Well, what did the resurrection do? It beat sin, Satan, and death. So you and I, we daily think about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he came out of that grave, sin had no longer control over us. We no longer belong to the family of Satan. And death certainly doesn't have our rule. <laughs> you kill me, I go to Jesus. To live as Christ, to die is gain. I mean, that's because of the resurrection. Paul says, I want to know that more, that I may know. Um, continual tense, he, he's, not, he's not there yet. He wants to keep knowing the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, fellowship with the Christ, uh, the sufferings of Christ. Well, I think what he's talking about is dying, dying daily to self. Christ died daily, didn't he, in a sense. Not my will, but yours. He steps out of heaven where angels are at his beck and call. Where the train of his robe is the glory of the heaven and angels there floating around. Holy, holy. I mean, the scene in Isaiah 6 is, is magical in a way, isn't it? He steps out of that to be implanted into a virgin woman by the Holy Spirit and vaginally birthed and live in a sinful, God-forsaken world. <laughs> he suffered, didn't he? And the Bible shows that God proved his perfection through suffering. Maybe he's trying to prove your suffering, your perfection through your suffering. See, we just run from suffering so easily. But yet Paul says, look, I want to... I want to suffer like Christ. I want to have fellowship. I want to have a kindred spirit to understand him better even when I suffer. He says being conformed to Christ's death. Well, that's giving up with this life. Dying to walk with the Lord. Christ gave up his life. And, he, and he's calling us. And Paul says, I want to understand that more. I want to understand what it more is to give up my life for Jesus. And this all results in the resurrection of his own body joined with his soul in eternity. You see that in chapter, 10, uh, chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. So, brothers and sisters, are you pressing in on the grasp of what Christ finished for you? You have to remind. Doctrine is so important. 
Oh, Lord Jesus, you died and set me free of my sin. I have no condemnation. You'll never leave me nor forsake me. I am now holy and blameless in your sight, all because of your son's finished work. God, to tell yourself that daily. Because that's what motivates you. Most of our prayers are not filled with that doctrine. It's filled with, God, will you do this? This isn't fair. Why would you allow this to happen? Oh, yeah, thanks for the food. Is that, is that right? That's what happens to us some days. And we stall out. Third thought. Are we running after what lies ahead? Or are we spiritually bogged down with sin? Look at verse 13 with me. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do. (laughs) No, right? Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Again, Paul reminds us that he's not fully arrived there yet. And Paul doesn't... He doesn't leave us empty-handed here without instructions. He tells us that we need to press on. And, and because of the nature of Scripture, it exhorts us to keep going. And verse 13 is telling you to quit looking back. I mean, just think about the success that he had. He had such success in Judaism. Pharisee of Pharisees. Hebrew of Hebrews. Zealous for the law. Perfection, he says. He counts that all Worthless. He doesn't look back onto that at all. And then think about this personal failures. I mean, oh my goodness. Dads didn't come home to families because of Apostle Paul. Or Saul at the time. Somewhere along the line, he had to lean deeply on the finished work of Jesus Christ to ever have his conscience cleared of the things he did in the past. And he did. And he says, look, I'm not, I'm not looking back. I know the Lord forgave me. It isn't cheap grace. That's actually expensive grace. It was the death of Jesus that freed him from that. And so he presses on. And, and I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, Satan just loves the past. He, it is his playground. He loves to prick your conscience and make you feel guilty. He loves the past. He'll kill you in the past. The Bible doesn't Speak that way. The great patriarchs of the Old Testament, their past is not remembered. A Sarah who, who gave her husband Hagar, who laughed at the pre-incarnate Christ of the coming of a child in a year, is never remembered that. She's remembered because she was holy and she put her hope in God. That's how the Lord looks at us. And so though we are times we must confess, Lord, I failed you. Will you forgive me? I know you did at the cross and thank you that you died for my sins, but we move forward. Look at chapter 2 with me. Just turn over a page, chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, because I got it thinking about some of the things that hold us back in a good Christian church, a church that teaches the Bible. He's talking positionally again in verse 12 and 13. He's just got done talking about the great kenosis, we call it, the great uh, work of Jesus Christ who emptied himself of, of his right. He gave up his right to all of his, of his deity that would be fully explained, uh, uh, fully explained who he was, but he, he veiled it in, in humanity and he took on flesh. He humbled himself. What a great text. And because of this, God says that every knee will bow and I'll exalt his name above every name. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And then he says in verse 12, so then, I'm in chapter 2, verse 12, so then, my brethren, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. So something's happening with the, with the Philippian church. 
They're not just being, hey, the pastor's here, let's act right. I've always told you, it's really fun for me to knock on people's doors sometimes. Man, there's all kinds of scrambling going on uh, back there. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> Be who you are in Christ. So Paul says, I'm so glad that you're, you're not living for me anymore. You're living for Jesus. I think that's what he's saying. You're living for the Lord. And he says this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You go, oh, wait a minute, pastor. Work out your salvation? Wait a minute, I thought that was Christ did it all. Not, man doesn't have anything to do with that. Christ does that work and it's imputed to us and so forth. Yes, it is. But there's an, there's an understanding to work out what Christ has done. In, in, in other words, in our, in our text, work out what Christ has laid hold of for you. You have to work that out. You have to realize it's not me. Christ did this for me. Christ laid down his life. Christ took my condemnation and judgment. Work that out. Get your mind around it. Get your heart around what Jesus has done. That's how you get saved, and that's how you walk with the Lord daily. And then he reminds us, in case that isn't enough, he says in verse 12, for it is God who is at work in you. So if you were thinking that working out your salvation was your, your part, you begin to realize, no, it's him that's worked in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, what stops that? These next verses are, I think, man, very good verses for us in this day and age right now. Look what he says. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. Ooh. You want to talk about looking back or coming to a crawl in your Christian experience, this will bring you there. The word grumbling is used repeatedly in the Old Testament. And you know who uses it? God. Over and over, he uses the term as he watches his nation grumble. This ten times, he says in Numbers, you've grumbled against me. I go, whoa, you're counting. <laughs> the picture is so subific, isn't it? I took you out of bondage and slavery and death. I miraculously parted the sea and brought you to myself. And you complain. You complain. You grumble. You want to slow down in your Christian life and become very spiritually unfit? Grumble. Grumble against your, your marriage partner. Grumble against your children. Grumble against your parents. Grumble against the church. Grumble against the government. Grumble against the administration. Grumble, grumble, grumble. You will come to a dead halt. The opposite is taught of Christians. We praise. I mean, that's pretty dynamically different, isn't it? Grumble or praise. When you lay down in a coffin here one day, and I'm talking about you at your service, can and will you let me talk about how you praised God? Or will I have to find some stories about how hard of worker you were? Did you praise him or did you grumble? And, and how are we who left behind supposed to find assurance that you're with the Lord when nothing God did for you was praised? You want to come to a spiritual stop? Grumble. Look at this next word. Disputing. Oh, my goodness. Dilagamos is the word. It means 
a verbal exchange in the original language. It means expressing opinions. And this is an, an even further list, a clash of ideals. Is there not, and let's be honest, a clash of ideals going on in the church today? Vaccinated, not vaccinated. Government, Biden, this, that. I mean, um, we're getting lost in a clash of ideals. It hurts as elders as we hear about Facebook posts where the Lord Jesus Christ is not spoke of, but there's challenges and, and pushing on people to do things their way. That's legalism. See, he, he says this is what halts you, brothers and sisters. When you grumble and complain and you have this clash of ideas. Look what he says. He doesn't want this up. Don't do this. Do the, let God work out your salvation without these things, without grumbling that God's watching, without clashes of ideas. And he says this, look at this. I love so that's in the Bible. I circle all of them. So that you will prove yourself to be blameless and innocent. Blameless as innocent is, again, our position, right, in Christ. It's our position. So he says, you will be proved. Now, if you look at ESV and, and, and IV, and a, they, they usually say to be, but I think the NSA translators got this right, and this is why. The Greek word is genomai here, and it means we've translated to be. But here it is in a subjective, uh, subjunctive aorist middle tense, and it's a beautiful way, and, and this is why we teach our guys Greek, because it starts to really come about. The middle voice is, is telling us that there, there's something that's progressing here. There's, 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 there's something that's refining, something that's happening here. And then subjunctive gives the idea that there's, there's something, uncertain, something uncertain that can be possible, right? That's subjunctive in a, in a rounder view of subjunctive in the, in the Greek means. It means something that, that is uncertain can be made possible. And so he says, Paul says this, so that you will prove yourself. Something that seems uncertain. I cannot do it myself. I cannot be saved myself. I can't, I can't redeem myself. I, I really, in my sanctification process, I'm so desperate for the scriptures and, and for the spirit of God. But it proves to me that God is doing something. And it proves to me that God did something. I'm blameless and above reproach. Because of God's word. I'm innocent. See, that's our standing. And, and, and you go, well, Scott, I believe that. Well, look where, look at it goes a little farther. Children of God, above reproach, it's a term used for elders, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, are we there? <laughs> well, we've been there since the fall. But it's really showing its ugly head now, isn't it? See, he wants us to prove to ourselves that God has done what God has done. And the only way we'll ever prove that to ourselves is there is a dedication to pressing on and chasing Jesus all the way to that final gate. That's what he wants. And look what happens. You appear as lights in a dark world. It's dark up there. It's really dark. I, 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 I don't know where all these refugees are landing, but I prayed hard this week that somebody in some church would go receive them. And let their, their sometimes views of America go away and go pursue what Christ is pursuing. 
I, I understand safe borders. I understand that. But are we after the things God is after? He goes on, he tells you how to do this, hold fast to the word of God so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I, didn't, I did not run in vain. He goes, look, chase the word of God, that's where it's at. So when you finish, I'll be going, yeah, I didn't waste my time at Philippi. <laughs> they really did listen. I mean, don't you like this as a mom or a dad when your kids finish some cross line? Like, hey, they graduate, never thought that was gonna happen. Go get them. <laughs> Paul's saying, when you cross that line by death or by rapture, I want to be there and go, woohoo! That's, that's what holding to the fast word does. And one more exhortation here, then I got to speed through my last point. But if, but even if, he says, verse 17, if I'm being poured out as a drink offering, 2 Corinthians chapter, no, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 says, I am being poured out. There he knows his life is done. Here he's in prison and he says, if I'm being poured out. I don't know if this is the end. This might be the end. I don't know if they're sharpening the blades. Um, this might be it. But if I'm being poured out upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, all that I've done to teach you and help you grow, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. If I'm going to die of COVID, I hope that my race has caused you to be joyful. I hope that you will run and, and our joys will be connected in Jesus Christ no matter what happens to me. See, don't you want to have that? If you start to get that cough and not feel good? Don't you want that hope that you know that you'll have joy in what God is doing no matter what you would like him to do? You know that he's in control. I love the last verse. It says, And you too, I urge, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. I'll share my joy with you. You share your joy with me. That's walking in Jesus. Boy, this is the church. This is what he's after. Verse 13, as you look back across the text in chapter 3, he says, Reach forward. One movie said it this way just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. Keep running. The word, the Greek word means to reach out for something, to strain to attain it. We don't, we don't associate salvation, uh, life after salvation with straining, don't we? We should. Life is way harder after salvation. <laughs> if you told somebody, oh, come to Jesus, it's going to be, you know, roses and popcorn. You lied to them. Way harder. Now we know our sin. We know what cost him. I mean, I mean, we are so aware of who we are in Christ now. It is way difficult after salvation. But we have the word of God, we have the spirit of God, and we have a perfect standing to run towards. For do our earthly goals match our heavenly calling? Verse 14. I press on to the towards the goal of the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. Well, that's what Jesus did. Not my will be done, but yours. He told his disciples, your will be done. He, was told, as he taught them how to pray. He said, Lord, your will be done on earth as is heaven. So whatever's done in heaven, Lord, we want it done here. And whatever's done here should match with heaven. I mean, that's a great line. Your will be done in, in, a, in the great Lord's prayer, right? On earth as it is in heaven. That's what, that was the Lord's goal. 
If you want to press on, that's what you do. Lord, help me do it your way. Help me have this singular passion focus to do things your way. Don't let me get lost in the changes in, in life. Don't let me get lost in my suffering that I go through. Don't let me get lost that you didn't do things the way I wanted you to do them. Don't let me get lost in that I'm, I am not, uh, uh, I see other people growing in Christ, um, and, I, and I can't think I could stay up with them. Help me stay in my own lane. Help me grow the way you want me to grow. Look, the world's predictable, predictable hopelessness should cause us to shine brightly. Boy, we have hope in Christ. Last thought before we go to communion is how will you finish? How will you finish? Look at verses 15 and 16. Let us therefore as many as are perfect... That's the saved. Have this attitude. And if anything in you have, if any, excuse me, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also. Well, he's either going to discipline you or judge you. He's going to discipline you if you belong to him. If not, he's going to judge you. You see, God will reveal that. And, and, and I love this text because say, you've got to look at this text, and I hope you're doing this, brothers and sisters, God, if there's things in me, I, think I know them, I could probably tell you, but can you expose those to me and say, this is different than me? This is not me here. This is not the way I would conduct myself. This is opposing me here. And you would say, God, make me aware of that. Make me aware of that. Do whatever it takes to get me in line with you. Verse 16, however, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. Keep fighting the fight. Keep running the race. Keep pursuing the glory of Christ. Today you're sitting on the side of a spiritual race. Get up. You may need some help. You may need someone to come along and get an arm under you. You need some counseling. You need someone to walk through some things with you. Get up. Christ died for you. Not to leave you on the side of the road. Father, we have so much more to say in these texts, but Time eludes us. We're so time-sensitive here in this life. But we pray that you would challenge us, Lord, to be those who pursue Christ. Pursue at all costs, who desire to live for you, walk with you, love you, love others, Lord. Lord, help us not get caught up in grumbling and disputes that are not of you, Lord. Lord, help us be known as a church where they may not agree with us over here, but they know we love one another. And they know... We love our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.